Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach, and owner of James Robert Fitness. You can find more of my content by going to my website, fitamputee.co.uk. But before we get started with today's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners. And if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Craig Twist. Craig is an applied sports and exercise scientist at the University of Chester with a keen interest in the science of rugby, training, fatigue and recovery. Craig is regularly invited to review scientific papers for the journal Sports Science, International Journal of Sports Medicine, Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, Medicine and Science in Sports Science, European Journal of Applied Physiology, Journal of Science and Medicine in Sports, Scandinavian Journal of Science, International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance, and the European Journal of Sports Science. Craig is currently co-editor of the Physiology of Conditioning section for the IRB Rugby Science Network. So welcome on to the show, Craig. Thanks for having me, James. Thanks for the invite. So before we delve into today's topic... Can you divulge to my audience what was kind of the um, your factors behind wanting to become a sports scientist first and then kind of wanting to progress more so into the realms of physiology? Um, well, like, like a lot of people, I, I played I played sport as a youngster, um, particularly rugby, but um, wasn't that good. Um, ended up going down the route of education and doing my sort of A-levels in PE and then went to university in sports science and sort of a little bit uh, unsure where I wanted to be at the end of that. And I ended up going into education and we were just talking before we started, started teaching FE, uh, pretty close to, to where you are, and then sort of moved up that down that route and ended up, again, alongside that, doing a little bit of applied work with, again, with rugby because of contacts that I had. Um, and ended up doing, um, working as a strength and conditioning coach initially. Um, working with Great Britain Island students, um, which was a really good um, learning ground for me. Sort of translated what I'd done as a, as a student and really put that into practice. So working with athletes, we did a couple of tours to Australia, New Zealand, um, and worked on those. And it, it just really, I say, broadened my sort of work and knowledge base uh, from what I've been done as a, as a degree. Um, sort of progressed without needing to get a job. Uh, ended up working in education to start off with in FE um, and then from there sort of progressed uh, completed my PhD which looked at muscle damage and, and recovery uh, with a guy called Rod Dresden um, and then from there sort of I say over the last, last 14 years I've been based at Chester uh, and in that time sort of built a little a small group here of people that we have an interest in the, one of the areas that we want to talk about today which is sort of monitoring fatigue and recovery um, but I've also been doing that, um, as well as we've been researching that area quite extensively, we've also done quite a lot, a lot of applied work, or we've worked with various groups and tried to inform them of best practice in terms of monitoring. Um, so m- m- really, I say, one of those things that you started off as an interest in sports, doing it yourself, but then sort of ended up sort of falling into that, that career, and as I've gone along, I've sort of progressed and sort of gone down that research route, really. And Craig, now you work at the University of Chester, that link between the university and Warrington Rugby League, 
does that help massively in your research? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've done work with Warrington, um, and obviously the the deal that I mean, you see that as a sponsorship deal. They're based outside Padgate Campus, and John Clark, who's the head of conditioning there, is actually an ex-student of ours who I've worked with quite closely in the past, and we, we, we continue to do work with Warrington. Um, but we've also got um, projects with other clubs as well. So we, we work with uh, St Helens um, and Matt Daniels, who's um, somebody that I've known for a long time. Um, it helps that I'm from St Helens originally, um, so I know quite a few of the people there. Um, but I've worked with Matt quite a bit. And we've also worked with the governing body as well, the RFL. So we're, we're just finishing a three-year project now, um, which again has had some elements of monitoring in there as well. And it, it helps hugely because from the point of view of one of our research and access to decent athletes that we can and the love the work that we do tends to be very translational so it's we're doing the research with the, with the hope of improving performance and informing what these guys do day to day and week to week and um, it also provides a number of opportunities for our students at undergrad uh, that have worked with all of those three that I've mentioned there plus we work with a number of other sports as well uh, not just just rugby we, we work with um, some um, rowing groups, some cycling groups. We've got a couple of people here that are quite interested in that area. Uh, we're currently just starting a project working with cycling and uh, looking at some of those areas. So we're not we're not confined to rugby, but it's a key area for us in terms of informing our students and give, giving them the experience. And then also from our point of view, teaching. I always feel that you know if I'm studying from the students talking about different components of recovery or training. I need to have some kudos in the fact that we're actually doing that work as well alongside that. So it keeps us very current. So it keeps our teaching. Um, I think certainly for the group that I, I lead, it, it keeps our teaching very current and contemporary because the stuff that we're talking about um, is obviously, we're seeing it firsthand out in the field as well. And we can bring these people in to, to talk with our students as well and give them that, that real experience. So, yeah, having that link with people like Warrington, St Helens, the RFL, uh, British Cycling, the like, is really important for us. And coming back to the rugby league front as well, Craig, you did a study on um, what was the implications of the ball in play on fatigue and recovery. Now that the the, the kind of the sport between rugby league and rugby union. Uh, because the ball is in play for a lot, lot longer period of time in rugby league, do you think that has a detrimental uh, um, impact on the players' uh, one performance, but also their recovery more so compared to what rugby union? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think the one of the things that, that that clearly does is the ball is in play for longer means that the game's faster. Um, so. Rugby union tends to be the, 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 the two very different sports. I've been asked this question before, but the two very different sports. And um, rugby union tends to be, uh, if you look at some of the GPS data, they're, they're typically moving at speeds of around 60 to 65 metres per minute, um, which is obviously punctuated with lots of stops in play, but also rucking, mauling, uh, line out, scrummaging, which we don't get in, in rugby league. Rugby league is a, is a more simple game, if you like, it's backwards and forwards, but what, what that does is it creates the games a bit quicker so you're probably getting more up towards 85 to 100 metres per minute and that's, that's the average demand um, but also within that like I said the key element is the collision um, so 
and there are peak periods of you know in the game where they will go well, they will go well above that 100 meters per minute, maybe up to 120. But when you stop break, that's not that quick. Um, so it, it's more to do with the movements that they're doing probably as well. So it's the backwards and forwards movements. Um, and they get, as I said before, a key element is the collision. Um, so the running bit, I always say the running bit's pretty easy because the player's only covering about, in some positions, maybe 4 or 5k. Um, those players that are on the field for longer may be getting up towards 7k in a game, some kilometres. But when they're actually having to do lots of accelerating, decelerating, they're going into collisions where there's three or four people trying to stop them. When they're in that collision, they're then involved, it, certainly in rugby league, there's a wrestle. You know, so dominating, trying to get position on the ground. So what we tend to find is some of the work that we've done, uh, certainly more recently, is that the running causes some damage and some fatigue that we see in the days afterwards. But certainly um, when you add the collision to it, it, maybe it slows the running down, but it doesn't change the damage response in any way, shape or form, because that, that physical trauma is adding to that, is adding another element. So I think for me, one of the key things is we get the ball in play is maybe part of, you know, is manifested or has an issue in the fact that the speed of the game and then it's more to do with what the game is what's involved in the game the number of collisions so if you do more collisions and those collisions are harder you're going to see more damage in the days afterwards likely so it's, it's not just the, it's the ball in playing the, the movements it's the actual what they're actually doing in the game is important so would the damage itself be more significant nowadays because the players and this is probably sport as a whole, the the players have become bigger and stronger, so the collisions are always going to be more detrimental. Interesting question because I think um, there's some work that's shown that obviously, um, yes, I think obviously the bigger the players are bigger, they're, they're creating more force going into that collision. Technically, probably better as well than the very cut. I mean, a lot of teams now employ wrestling coaches. Uh, for the collision to, to get them to, to be quite efficient in that wrestle and dominance and you know they do employ um, some you know rest, uh, wrestling techniques so yes they're probably more um, attuned to that and they're creating more force so intuitively you think yes they're going to cause more damage and, and fatigue the other side of it is probably that these, these players are fairly well trained in most cases um, and there's some work that's shown that fitter players are generally recover better Um so I, I don't know his answer to that. I, I would imagine that, you know, we, we have seen that, you know, players are, and again, it depends on what your marker of recovery is, you know, so we've got a number of things, and I'm sure we'll probably get into this at some point, but you know, we've got a number of things that we can look at and we can say what is recovery, you know, what is, you know, in the days after, what are you looking at? Is it force? Is it how you feel, soreness? Is it your attitude to train? Is it, is it bloodborne markers? So... That, that has a huge burger on several things there, but I don't know. I, I, I would think pl- players do get fatigued now, but I, we, we have no data from sort of, say, 10, 15 years ago to compare it against, so it would be very difficult. But I say intuitively, you'd think, yes, that there's more force being created, and there's a lot more into going on in terms of the rest of the tackle is such a dominant part. I think probably, yes, you, you, might, you might expect that to, to be the case. So you would say it would be more useful going forward as using data nowadays as kind of a marker and a base layer to kind of compare with data future down the line as opposed to being able to compare to past data. Yeah, that's a 
I think that's a really valid point. Certainly, longitudinal data is is, is more valuable to us. Um, a lot of the stuff that we see is probably very cross-sectional snapshots of you know we've published data on that as of others of you know single games or a series of games looking at response to that um, looking at how players adapt over a longer time and um, there's, there's some argument that older players might be a little bit more tolerant that you know if you take for example some of the, you know these teams now have, have players ranging from 18 years of age up to probably mid 30s um, It'd be an interesting study, actually, when you, you talk about launches, how do these players, you know, do they adapt to this collision? Um, we have some data, very tentative, that shows that, you know, more established rugby players might be a little bit more tolerant to the impact and the collision and, you know, in the response that they see in the games afterwards. Now, whether that reaches a threshold and then once they get past a certain age, so, late, you know, because you can talk to players... And some of the older players will say, yeah, well, yeah, I, I find it hard to recover after games. or But that's just them telling you that. Um, so, But then you also talk to some of the younger lads that, you know, for the first time to take a step up and play some senior competition, they're really struggling for the days after that. Now, is I say, is there a point, is there a sort of middle mid, mid ground where these players over time, I'm sure they do, they adapt to that. We, there's something called the repeated bout effect, which we see... Um, certainly when we do resistance training with people um, and then we repeat that, you know, the, the response that we see the second time round is sort of, is attenuated. And now that's from quite controlled resistance training studies. Whether we get that from contact sports or sports like football, change of direction, I'm not so sure. There is some work by a guy called Glenn Howitson up at Northumbria that's shown that this repeated bout effect isn't as prominent in, in team sports like football. When we, we play in multiple games. So you're never doing the same thing twice. Uh, no resistance training, we can do the same. You know, we can do the same training set. You know, two weeks apart. This games are very games vary from match to match. The number of t- tackles you do, the number of sprints you do, the number of accelerations, decelerations. We're never getting that consistency there. So um, I would imagine there's probably some adaptive effect, but as I say, you're never getting the same thing twice. So. Um, players are always going to be sore whatever age they are but in, getting back to your point in the longitudinal stuff would be really interesting to look at that over time and see how players adapt um, I don't think we have we're probably starting to get to that point now where we do have that data um, and it would be interesting we haven't done it and I'm not sure I know of anybody that has but looking at if we could take a group of players over say a five six year period and we've got consistent measurements whether they've adapted to that and they show less signs of damage and fatigue, I, I wouldn't know, to be honest with you. But, but, coming, but coming to that recovery point that you raised, Craig, wouldn't it come down to a, the player's perception of recovery, be it from both a physiological standpoint but also a psychological one, because of they're both going to bring different uh, mm. components to how they perceive it? Yeah, I mean... Let, let's be frank, when we talk about recovery, like I said before, it depends on what you class as recovery. So if I was doing a research study, um, I would I would propose several markers of recovery. So if I, I if I got you to do a, a heavy resistance session, say for example, and I wanted to monitor your recovery from that, I'd probably want a measure of force in there, some measure of function, because we know that that's one of the best indirect markers we have of damage to the muscle 
Um, so that's been confirmed now with several studies that you know measures of force provide you with the best indication of damage after exercise. I'd probably want some measure of perceptual sort of you know fatigue or damage, so soreness, attitude to training. Um, we could take blood markers, um, which seems to be quite prominent in the literature. Less so in the, in the applied world because of the cost and the fact that players are very reluctant, or athletes are very reluctant to give blood samples. We started seeing emergence now of things like urine markers, which again are a little less invasive, um, but they provide us using um, metabolomic procedures where we can start to look at some of these responses. But that's very much in its early days, um, and but we are starting to see an emergence of that. Um, other things like range of motion, sit and reach, functional tests, these are all the things that we, we see. You know, if you go into most team sports now, you'll see them doing things like uh, knee to wall tests, uh, range of motion around the hips, knees, ankles. And these are all things that we use to make a judgment on. Um, now, getting to your point of perception, I, I genuinely think that's really important is how the player feels. Um, because when we look at these force losses after most types of activities that we do, so training sessions, matches, um, you're probably only talking about losses of around 5 to 10% in function, which to me, you know, it might seem a lot, but, you know, most players will tolerate that. You can still go out and do something with a, you know, 4 or 5% loss in your, for example, jump height or your knee extensor. And so, now, if there's a player with a really large decrease because they've done more in a particular training session and or the less, the more susceptible, well, they're the ones that you might want to give some thought to. But in the main, the functional losses on average are probably quite low. I think what's important is that if you look at um, how they feel after a game, that will certainly influence how willing they are to engage in exercise in the days after. Um, and it will influence what they want to do. And I'll, I'll give you a practical example. We do some work, I mentioned before, with, um, with, with St Helens, actually. And it's, they went through a period where they played, um, I would say, four games you know, in the space of two weeks. And two of them, probably, there was probably more than that, but it's an intensive period over the Easter period. Um, now, we know for a fact that those players were showing signs of soreness um, and you know, they, they, they were down in the functional measures. If I had taken blood from them, that would have been increased as well. But one of the key things that the coaching staff took on board was keeping the players quite happy, keeping them sort of buoyed and, you know, sort of, look, you're going to have to get through this. There's nothing we can do about it. And um, they went through that. One year they did that, they struggled. I think they won one game out of the four. Uh, this year, and that was taking a different approach, this year they took the approach of you know work on the recoveries with them, keep them buoyant, keep things light, you know, keep them engaged. And the, the players generally got and got through that and they won all four games. But the atmosphere in the camp was very different, and that was a big emphasis just on the more subjective attitudes of the players. Look, we have to do this, um, and we have to get them through. So I think certainly there's an element in terms of your question is that in terms of how the players feel and they're after you know the, the that is a real key marker for us and trying to alleviate some of those soreness and doing things around the most subjective markers might be more important to us rather than focusing on things like the functional measures. And I say, maybe for those that show extreme changes in function, you might want to have some caution about. But in the main, I, say, I don't think those are too significant. They're fairly small. 
the, the changes that we are concerned about is just maybe the ones that are how sore you're feeling are you prepared to do things and if you're not well we need to do something about that whether that's changing the training giving you a different recovery strategy um, resting you so these are things, but again, I think your point is the, the athlete's perception of how they feel is very, very important. But coming down to the, the actual recovery itself now, Craig, it's coming from uh, well that perception of me competing at a high level as well. You you kind of you're going to have those days where you don't want to train, you don't want to um, do anything in particular. But why? does that come about that is it kind of a, the body giving you warning signs that things are kind of going down a slippery slope or is it sometimes more mental than that there's probably a number of things that are informing your your attitude to exercise or your you know so muscle soreness is a um we're sort of the number of things where that comes from but generally we're looking at probably inflammation uh, probably within the muscle that comes as a consequence of generally it's it's lengthening type exercise so where you've done lots of the muscles lengthened under tension so eccentric contractions um, so we see a lot of that in resistance training um, we get a lot in things like you know prolonged running um, where we, we probably see more severe change on marathon half marathon um, but if we're doing very intense sessions where we're doing lots of heavy lifting or di- those eccentric contractions will probably um, are, are likely to cause, and certainly in, if, if you're, let, you're unaccustomed to that, will show some signs and changes there. So in terms of the recovery, then when you're you're probably looking at um, how we how we monitor that. But obviously, those, those uh, kind of well, it's a kind of a niche population. They would be accustomed to the workload that's coming up over their body why why does it uh, would, would would the um, heavy loads be less significant because they are used used to that kind of workload yeah it goes back to saying before that there's repeated bout effects so what we tend to find is that you know when you become accustomed to a certain type of chain your body adapts um, in terms of the, the cellular adaptations uh, connective tissue adaptations there's neural adaptations that we see within the muscle now we're not quite sure which one it is that contributes to it but generally is that if we give you a training stimulus um, you will get that adaptive response that comes from that exercise bout that then if you like to use a term you know, that in, improves the robustness of that muscle to that type of exercise so if you repeat that a week two weeks later the symptoms that you see in the days after would generally be attenuated you wouldn't see the same loss in force you wouldn't see the same soreness so yes in terms of your training that part of that adaptive response as well as getting stronger fitter faster your body's there are adaptations there that are making that muscle more robust in terms of its ability to deal and recover quick so you you generally recover quicker um, after that so there's an argument I suppose in terms of you know, when we're dealing with this is that you know, do we let people naturally recover after exercise and you know to to respond so and then the next time we know that they're going to be there's going to be less damage there and because they're adapting or do we need to apply some kind of recovery strategy with them in the days afterwards and I think it, it, it depends quite a lot on where you are so if for example you're competing 
or you're in a situation where you've got to train again or you've got to replay again. So practical example would be tournaments or athletics where they're doing, you know, they're, they're doing heats and then they're going to have to compete again. You, you probably want to apply some recovery strategies there. That, there's a numerous options they can have, but you, you might want to apply some recovery strategies there. If you're in a sort of training phase and you want the athlete to, to improve and adapt, there's, there's some argument that applying some recovery strategies might actually blunt that ad- adaptive response, which is not what you want as an athlete. You're training for a reason. So what you might do is say, well, look, you just have to suffer here. You, know, you have to get through this a little bit and, and deal with it. But that's that's part of what we're doing. The training is here. So going back to your point before about athletes and their attitude, you know, how they, how they fit, you know, there's a lot of things going on here. But I think for me, is you have to explain, I think, what's the purpose of training? So pre-season, for example, is a real key example for us is that you probably want, you're not that focused on recovery strategies in the pre-season because the idea of that pre-season, and like in athletics, your, your training blocks, the idea is you want to train and adapt. So what we need to do is, as I say, you're going to see some symptoms here, probably because what we're doing is hard. You know, we will change the stimulus throughout that, and that will have an effect. But you just have to suck it up and get on with it. However, when we get into those phases where we need to be fresh or as fresh as we can be, so sometimes we have to accept that going into games, if it's in tournaments or in um, in heat, you, you might not be as fresh as you want to. So we've done some work with Touch Rugby, for example. And they're playing um, probably three games a day, games about 40 minutes, quite fast because there's no contact in there, balls in play quite a lot. Um, they probably get about two hours between games, but then they'll play three games over every day for four days, certainly the better teams. Now, for those guys, we need to work hard with them in between you know, to get them recovered. But what we tell them is, look, what we do with you here, you're never going to be as fresh as you are on day one. Um, we'll try and get you back there and we'll do whatever we can and whatever you want, you know, what you feel is necessary to get. So if they need ice baths, if they need, you know, the nutrition is obviously key. Um, but generally, if, if we get you, if you need ice baths or you need um, massage, whatever we can do to make you feel fresh or as fresh as you can be, we'll do that. Um, so those things, those types of scenarios are where we're probably throwing everything at them, the kitchen sink a lot to try and make sure that they can get from day to day in the right state. Um, but as I say, in a more training scenario, as I said, there's some, there's, there's the body of work now that's showing is that some recovery, like cold water immersion, for example, actually blunts any adaptive responses, which is a coach and an athlete you don't want. So it, it, it depends, is, that, is, is probably the key phrase there. It depends where you are. But now, Craig, obviously trying to implement the recovery techniques now it's quite difficult from being in a, you could say, an individual environment as opposed to a team environment, because like you attested to, well, getting massage done individually is quite difficult. Yeah, I mean, the, the recovery strategies one is, is an interesting one because um, the, the literature now is, I mean, you don't need to do a search on the internet for recovery strategies after sports. And you won't be short of, you know, finding anything. There are lots and lots of studies on that. I suppose it goes back to an earlier point: is what is recovery? You know, what are you looking to do in the days after? So, in a lot of studies, they're quite um, sterile environments. You're talking about, well, what does function, blood, soreness, range of motion look like in the days afterwards? And um, very few of those studies, or 
a large number of them, should I say, don't have any measure of performance in there, you know, ready to exercise and do things. So the ones that are done in a more applied environment or with a more applied focus, I think have got a little bit more value. So, you know, getting athletes to do some kind of exercise in the days afterwards is, is, is I think, is key. So, you know, what are you looking for them to recover for is, is a key thing. It, it then comes down to, in terms of the strategy that you're going to employ, is well, as a, what do I want to do with them? What, what, how do I want them to recover? Um, so it's then up to you to come up with a decision on well, if I, I know that I've got to recover between these bouts, I need to consider um, various strategies. So just remind me again. Sorry, I lost track. But what, what was the question you were focusing on? It was what, what, why is. Um like the importance of well, kind of being able to say you said being able to give the kitchen sink to people in a tournament environment, whereas you can't really replicate that individually no. in your own uh, home. Sorry, yeah. So, um, okay. So, the recovery literature to the ones is, as I say, is what are you recovering for? There are various things, and, and you mentioned some to me earlier. But you've got things like cold water, you've got massage, you've got. Um, exercise, stretch, a whole range of things. I think one of the key things for me is, is the nutritional element to making sure that we're recovered from whatever energy we've expended in the days afterwards. And we, we, we have seen some data where we get an increase, only small, but in rest energy expenditure in the days after damaging exercise. So we need to try and account for that. Certainly for athletes that are, you know, we don't want to lose weight. Um, but, you know, in terms of recovery, depending on what they've done so, um, and it, the nutrition isn't really my area, but certainly looking at you know what we're getting the athletes to eat immediately after they've exercised and in the days after to help them recover is pretty fundamental. But I, I would certainly be going for a food first approach rather than looking at supplementation and things like that. So making sure that we have the diet right is, is first and foremost. In terms of what you choose, and you say that obviously it depends on what the athlete has access to. There's a, a growing body now that, that starts to get to think that it's not really necessarily what you use per se. It's more that what you feel is best for you. So there was a really nice study that looked at cold water immersion with a group of athletes and got them to do an intensive training session. And then they immersed them in cold water afterwards and looked at the recovery the day after. They got, they got them to repeat the exercise the day after. And what they found is that the athletes that felt the cold water immersion was going to work actually recovered better. So what we're starting to see now in a lot of environments is rather than us prescribing a recovery strategy to the athlete that we, um, we're going to stick you all in an ice bath or we're going to give you all a massage, you, you start seeing, um, so some of the rugby teams, for example, I mentioned um, Warrington, you mentioned about Warrington before, John Clark, who's there, I know, has talked about this with me before is where they, they give them a, a range of options that the athlete can choose um, and they, 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 they provide a point system with them and say look you need to accrue 100 points in the day after this training session or this game um, how you do it is entirely up to you so some of them might choose to go and have a swim some might choose to go they, they might want to sit in an ice or put you know, ice packs on or whatever um, some might decide they want to do a little bit of um, stretching and some foam rolling. Um, so it, it really is that if they think that, that, and again, it comes back to the point before, it's, it's about the athlete's perception of what is recovery. You know, they're going to be weaker a little bit. 
but generally what we're trying to do is make sure that you know, in most cases, yes, there'll be some extremes where people have had a, either, they've not caught with the exercise particularly well and they've got a, some large losses in force, probably because they've done more than anybody else, or they've had more tackles, for example. But in the main, most will show fairly similar symptoms. And it's therefore giving the athlete an opportunity to say, well, look, this is what I think is best for me. I'm trying to work more psychologically with them and give them the opportunity. So what you might say to people is that if they haven't got access to all these different um, recovery modalities, is look, something is better than nothing. We know that. So you need to do something. So if you feel that, you know, if you don't need to have a massage, you don't need to have an ice bath, um, if you can and you want to do that and you want to find a way of doing it, fine. So ice baths, for example, you know, we've seen people filling wheelie bins, you know, full of cold water or kids paddling pools. We've used that when we were with GB students. We didn't have the facilities, so we used to have a kiddies paddling pool full of cold water and the players sat in that for 10 minutes. Um, so you can come up with ways of doing that. If you feel it's going for a, getting on your bike or going for a walk and that, that's your way, that to me would be fine because I think it's more about getting you just to feel, because I, I don't think that, you know, there's, again, going back to what are you recovering for is always a key point. And if it's, you've got to exercise the day after, well, okay, then we need to do something, but we just need to do something that you feel is best for you to allow you to go and do what you've got to do tomorrow or later in the day. But Craig, does it also come down to that kind of a placebo effect? You, you perceive that the technique that you utilize is going to give you some benefit. Yeah, the placebo, I mean, again, that comes back to that study I was talking about before, is this placebo effect, and I was talking with somebody today actually about this, it, you know, the placebo effect as a scientist is something you're trying to control and, and account for um, in, in study designs and make sure that the effect of the treatment that you're applying is working. In sport, I think it's quite different, um, and, and what you're looking at really is that in certain situations, and you know, within ethical and, and legal limits, I'm looking to do whatever I can to make sure that, that athlete is recovered and ready to do what I need him or her to do. So from a placebo point of view, if it's the athlete thinks that works for them, so for example, with the, the cold water immersion, if they think that's the thing for them, I'm quite happy for them to employ that as their strategy on the day after. I'm not going to force them to do it um, if they don't think it has, you know, has an effect. Um, and we see that all the time with you know you know some nutritional strategies. You know they they know they're taking a certain. You know, if they don't have that in the days after, um, they don't feel right. And again, it plays on the mind. And um, you know wearing different recovery garments or compression things like that. Um, we've we've seen that. You know again going back to the touch. You know touch rugby. We see that quite. These athletes know they're going to be sore. They know they're going to be. It's tough for four days. But they're employing all sorts of weird and wonder. You know, the compression, you see lots of people walking around in Lycra when you're at touch tournaments in between games and compression suits. But the evidence for them working is, again, most of it's all the effects and how you feel, soreness. Very little of it shows functional or blood marker changes, which are the sort of more physical, objective markers. But they do have an effect on the soreness, which, again, I think is a, you know, it's a subjective marker. So it... Again, yes, I think the placebo effect is, it's there, but I think it's something we need to embrace uh, and utilise within, as I said, within ethical and legal limits. That if that you think that's going to work, I think you, you, you go at it. But coming down to that, 
you bring up a good point there, Craig, with compression equipment, be it trousers, shorts, uh, and tops. Why is it scientifically not as useful for recovery? Because you say it helps with soreness, but what more could that product actually do to actually help recovery? Uh, well, as I, as I, it, it depends what recovery is. This is the thing. You know, you look at a lot of studies, as I said before, a lot of the studies that you see now on recovery will, will generally take a suite of markers or indirect markers of damage. So one would be force, which I would always, always advocate. Generally, when you look into publishing journals, they, they have a not necessarily correctly in my decision, but they will always want some, or they tend to push their blood marker because people think, you know, it, it can't be influenced by somebody's perception or subjective. It, it's a, obviously it can be depend, uh, it can be uh, dependent on nutrition, the sampling technique, how you analyse it, etc. But assuming that's done correctly, um, some bloodborne markers are either inflammatory or um, some changes like creatine kinase, a common marker, myoglobin that indicate tissue damage. Um, not not necessarily the magnitude, but that it's there. So you would want to see that. Um, the subjective markers and then functional and a performance map. These are all things that you typically see in most studies. Um, so let's take those studies, for example, that when we look at them, and if we took, for example, there have been meta-analyses done where they've pulled together numerous studies and looked at these the effects. The effects that we see on things like force and so are generally small of went like compression garments and um, so to me it, it then becomes an issue well it's not having a, a huge effect on the subjective markers and um, probably slightly bigger effect but again still only relatively small on subjective so uh, sorry a, a small effect on the objective matter like force etc i get a, a slightly bigger effect on things like soreness but it, it, it all depends on what you're measuring afterwards and again i think from a study's point of view, we, we can report these effects, if you like, but that's just on these markers that we have. The important point for me is in how you translate that into the real world. Yeah, so in a study, I could say, look, it has this effect on soreness, this effect on force, this effect on blood markers, fine. Nice, nice study. But the, the key point to me comes in, I've got to take that data and I've got to use it in the real world. And if, if for me, the foot, I can accept these small decrements. In for me, the, the main thing is, does the athlete feel that that is having a benefit for them, you know, and helping them recover? So if you've done an intense training session and then you coach, you say, right, well, you're back in tomorrow um, and we want to do another training and then we're going to compete. And, you know, if you, if you feel that's going to work for you, I think that's what you're hanging your hat in an applied environment. What works best for you and makes you ready to do what you need to do. So... It, the markers themselves become a little bit, um, you know, the side issue for me. It, it focuses more again on the more subjective markers and, and making the athlete ready to do what they need to do. And now, Craig, looking at obviously with the Europeans now in full swing from an athletic perspective, obviously it's been very, very warm in Germany, well, and mm-hmm. Britain per se, over the last couple of weeks and months. How detrimental is heat towards recovery now? Um, well, I think the, there's some evidence, and again, I, 
I'd have to go and actually look at the paper in more detail, but I know there's some argument that um, some of the damaging exercise might be um, might be increased when we do it in heat, but I, I couldn't really, I'd have to go and say, go and look at the paper on that one. One of the key issues for me probably would be dehydration uh, in terms of recovery. So certainly in in the longer duration events um, and the effect of that on performance. So we know that obviously depending on the exercise and the intensity and the duration, um, we you know heat regulation uh, is a key. You know, it's something we'd have to be focusing on. And um, so certainly in in those situations, I think where we'd have athletes wanting to do multiple um, events or um, in in terms of the um, different trials, you'd probably be focusing more on monitoring the hydration status and making sure that they're going into the exercise hydrated. Um, so I think from a recovery point, that, that's probably the key thing for me, I think, would, would be the issue there in terms of the heat. In, as I say, in terms of the damage response, I'm not, not quite sure. I think there has been some work looking at that, but I... I think there's probably only one or two studies, and I can't recall them off the top of my head at the minute. But also with the heat, coming down to you talk about dehydration, does it calm down to keeping obviously the cells uh, hydrated as much as possible, so you, you're keeping um, a normal function per se? Yeah, I mean, obviously, when, when with dehydration, the key thing then is that we start to see a change in things like cardiovascular function. Um, so as a consequence of that we get increase in heart rate uh, stroke volume, blood flow changes um, that obviously that have an impact there's also an argument that we would see certainly prolonged exercise we might see change in metabolism so increased reliance on carbohydrate metabolism which then might have an impact in terms of fatigue certainly for longer duration activities um, the other issue, I suppose, is also changes in perception. So, rating of perceived exertion, we know increases in exercise and the heat, um, which might have an impact on things like task engagement. Um, so, how much effort they're willing to expend. That then translates to things like pacing. So, you know, the, the, the pacing strategy that you adapt. I'm thinking things like marathon, half marathon, 10K, maybe the longer duration stuff. Um, were, were you. And then obviously things like um, if we're dealing with things like wheelchair racing over distance, so the, the strategy that you might employ um, in terms of how, how you distribute your energy will be influenced by the heat. And what we what, what the literature seems to suggest is that perception of effort seems to have an impact on that um, in terms of how the, uh, you know, so we know that with heat that perception of effort is increased. And then that translates then into a, an altered pacing strategy. So, yeah, certainly for the longer duration events, I think there'd be something there to consider. But then when it comes to the actual re- recovery technique, Craig, is it more paramount to utilise, obviously, something that's going to regulate your body temperature? Um, maybe, yes. I mean, talk, sort of pre, pre-events... Um, slightly different, I know it's not recovery but we know there's, there's work done on pre-cooling, so getting athletes to cool before, because again going back to this issue of you know this this critical core temperature and the, the, body, the heat raising obviously affects you know, one, there's a health risk but two, it will affect how much effort and your pacing you'll employ in the exercise, so if we cool the athlete beforehand uh, we know there's several studies shown that will, if they're cooler before they start 
the times that critical core temperatures improved. Um, interestingly, when we do it in the lab, we see an effect on performance, but when we actually put it in the field, we don't see the same effects. So Rob Duffield out in Australia has done some work in, in football, and that's probably because, again, the, the behavioural strategies that the athletes employ during the exercise. So when they're hot, they'll change the way that they exercise and um, to do that. In terms of recovery, um, I would imagine there'd be some benefit there. Um, there's been some work recently that's actually showed that cold water immersion afterwards can actually impair. This is in animal models, by the way, not in, in humans. But um, again, going back to this, um, this in, the, the effect of recovery is impairing any adaptation. There's, there's a potential for glycogen resynthesis to be impacted on in recovery if we use cold water immersion. Now, as I said before, I think for me the fundamental thing of recovery is nutrition. You know, making sure that the, those athletes are refueled and rehydrated, certainly in the heat. Um, now, this is only very, I mean, this, this sort of only published earlier this year, I think. Um, and what they showed is that um, when the muscle was, was cooled, the oxygen, up, the glycogen uptake was impaired. Now, that to me would be a negative um, because, you know, so if we're applying the cold afterwards to try and recover, um, and again, I think the effect of that is more likely to be on the perceptual soreness, the, you know, what we were saying before about the subjective feel. I think that would be the main effect you're looking for. I think that over the fact that if if it is, and again, I think there's more work needed on this, but if it is having an impact on glycogen uptake afterwards, well, that, that's, that to me would be a no. I'd, I'd want to make sure they were refueled better afterwards. We know that damaged muscle doesn't refuel as well. Um, so when we get damage to the muscle tissue, um, it, it, the um, glycogen resynthesis is slowed a little bit. Um, so it, there's potential there that is it, if we add the cold to that as well, we're, we're further impact on that recovery, which we wouldn't want in that situation. It's, it's certainly if recovery is what we want, um, as a new talker. So there's some probably caution needed there, but as I said, there's probably more work needed to understand more about that. And my final question for you, Craig, before we wrap up the episode, is if you had to summarise what we've been speaking about into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Understand what you're recovering for and why. So once again, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. It's been, the pleasure's been all mine. <laughs> And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short written review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it would be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast. Oh, my God.